This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. This is my first visit to Florida State, and I'm delighted that you all have come out this evening, and I'm looking forward to a profitable discussion on this topic tonight. The British author C.S. Lewis once remarked that God is not the sort of thing that you can be moderately interested in. After all, if God does not exist, there's no reason to be interested in him at all. On the other hand, if God does exist, then this is supremely interesting. And life's most important question will be, how am I to be rightly related to this being upon whom I depend moment by moment for my very existence? So people who shrug their shoulders and say, oh, what difference does it make whether God exists or not, merely show that they haven't thought very deeply about this question. Even atheist philosophers like Sartre and Camus, who have thought deeply about this question, recognize that the existence of God makes a tremendous difference for mankind. I believe that as we probe the natural world around us, we discover signposts of transcendence, as it were, pointing beyond the natural world to its ground in a transcendent personal being. And tonight I'd like to share with you seven of these reasons that I find convincing and uh, we'll open them for your consideration and discussion. Now, whole books have been written on each one of these, so all I can do in the brief time allotted to me is to briefly sketch each argument. And then during the discussion time, we can go into any of them in more depth that you care to talk about. You'll find in your program a handout which gives the premises or the outlines of each argument as I'm going to discuss them. And I would encourage you to follow along with the handout. First of all then, why anything at all exists? This is the most profound question of philosophy. Why is there something rather than nothing? In his biography of the great Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, Norman Malcolm reports that Wittgenstein said he sometimes had an experience which could best be described by saying that when I have it, I wonder at the existence of the world. I am then inclined to use such phrases as how extraordinary that anything should exist, or how extraordinary that the world should exist. This mystery, which according to Aristotle lay at the very root of philosophy, is one which even thoughtful atheists cannot avoid. Derek Parfit, for example, agrees that no question is more sublime than why there is a universe, why there is anything rather than nothing. Now, experience teaches that premise one on your handout, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or else in an external cause. This principle seems to me quite plausible, at least more so than its contradictory or its negation. Imagine that you were walking through the woods and you came across a translucent ball lying on the forest floor. You would find the claim quite bizarre that that ball just exists there inexplicably. And merely increasing the size of the ball, even until it becomes the size of the entire cosmos, would do nothing to eliminate the need for an explanation of its existence. According to this first principle then, everything that exists is either one of two types. The first type is something that exists necessarily by a necessity of its own nature. Examples? Well, many mathematicians believe that numbers, sets, and other abstract objects exist in this way. If such entities exist, they just exist necessarily, without any cause of their being. The other type is anything that has an external cause of its existence. Examples? Mountains, planets, galaxies, people. They have causes outside of themselves which explain why they exist. Now it's obvious that premise two, the universe, exists. 
It therefore follows logically that the universe has an explanation of its existence. So what sort of explanation could the universe have? Well, it seems plausible that premise three, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is an external, transcendent, personal cause. Why? Because the cause of the universe must be greater than the universe. Think of what the universe is. All of space and time and its contents. So the cause of the universe must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either abstract objects, like numbers, or else an intelligent mind. But abstract objects can't cause anything. That's part of the definition of what it means to be abstract. The number seven, for example, doesn't cause anything. Therefore, it follows that premise four, the explanation of the universe, is an external, transcendent, personal cause. That is to say, there exists an unembodied mind which created the universe, which is what most people have traditionally meant by the word God. So it seems to me that this is a sound argument for thinking that the explanation of why anything exists rather than nothing is to be found in a personal, transcendent, unembodied mind which is necessary in its existence and is the cause of the contingent universe. Number two, the origin of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Was there a beginning to the universe? Or does it just go back and back and back forever? Typically, atheists have said that the universe is just eternal, and that's all. But there are good reasons, both philosophically and scientifically, to doubt that this is the case. Philosophically, the idea of an infinite past seems absurd. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. For example, if you had an infinite number of coins that were numbered one, two, three, and so on to infinity, and I took away all the odd-numbered coins, how many coins would you have left? Well, you'd still have all the even-numbered coins, or an infinite number of coins. So, infinity minus infinity is infinity. But now suppose instead that I took away all the coins numbered four or greater. Would you have left then? Well, three. So infinity minus infinity is three. And yet in each case, I took away the identical number of coins, identical number of coins, and came up with self-contradictory answers. In fact, you can subtract infinity from infinity and get any result from zero to infinity. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, perhaps the greatest mathematician of the 20th century states, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It exists in nature, nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. All that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas in your mind, but are real, the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't just go back and back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This purely philosophical conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. In one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe 
is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 13 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. What makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into being at the Big Bang. As the physicist PCW Davies explains, the coming into being of the universe as discussed in modern science is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. Now, of course, alternative theories have been crafted over the years to try to avoid this absolute beginning. But none of these theories has commended itself to the scientific community as more plausible than the Big Bang Theory. In fact, in 2003, three cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin, were able to prove that any universe, which is, on average, in a state of cosmic expansion, cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. Belenkin pulls no punches. He writes, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. That problem was nicely captured by Anthony Kenny of Oxford University. He writes, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Such a conclusion would be, in the words of the philosopher of science, Bernhard Kanitscheider, in head-on collision with the most successful ontological commitment in the history of science, namely the metaphysical principle that out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. We can summarize this argument thus far as follows on your handout. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist, from which it follows three, therefore the universe has a cause. Given the truth of the two premises, the conclusion necessarily follows. Now, from the very nature of the case, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, spaceless, and immaterial being which created the universe. It must be uncaused because we've seen there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. So we must come to an absolutely first uncaused cause. It must be timeless and therefore changeless, at least without the universe, because it created time. Because it also created space, it must transcend space as well, and therefore be immaterial, not physical. Moreover, I would argue this cause must also be personal. For how else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect like the universe? If the cause were a mechanically operating set of uh, impersonal, necessary and sufficient conditions, then the cause could never exist without its effect. Once the cause is in place, the effect must be in place as well. For example, the cause of water's freezing is the temperatures being below zero degrees centigrade. Now, if the temperature were below zero degrees centigrade from eternity, then any water that was around would be frozen from eternity. It would be impossible for the water just to begin to freeze a finite time ago. So if the cause is permanently present, its effect should be permanently present as well. 
The only way for the cause to be timeless and the effect to begin to exist a finite time ago is for the cause to be a personal agent endowed with freedom of the will and therefore able to create spontaneous new effects without any antecedent determining conditions. For example, a man sitting from eternity could freely will to stand up and thus you would have a temporal effect with the beginning arise from an eternal cause. And therefore we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Number three, the fine tuning of the universe for intelligent life. During the last 40 years or so, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions simply given in the Big Bang itself. Scientists once believed that whatever the initial conditions of the universe, eventually intelligent life might evolve. But now we know that in fact our existence is balanced on a knife's edge of incomparable fineness. The existence of intelligent life depends upon a conspiracy of initial conditions which must be fine-tuned to a degree that is literally incomprehensible and incalculable. Now this fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain constants, like the gravitational constant. These constants are not determined by the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values of these constants. Second, in addition to these constants, there are certain arbitrary quantities which are just put in as initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy in the early universe or the balance between matter and antimatter in the universe. Now, all of these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. Were these constants or quantities to be altered by less than a hair's breadth, the balance would be destroyed and life would not exist. For example, PCW Davies has calculated that a change in the atomic weak force by only one part out of 10 to the 100th power would have prevented a life-permitting universe. The cosmological constant which drives the inflationary expansion of the universe and is responsible for the recently discovered acceleration of the universe's expansion is inexplicably fine-tuned to around one part out of 10 to the 120th power. Roger Penrose of Oxford University has calculated that the odds of the universe's initial low entropy condition obtaining by chance alone are on the order of one chance out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Penrose comments, I cannot even recall seeing anything else in physics whose accuracy is known to approach even remotely a figure like one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123. And it's not just each constant and quantity which must be finely tuned. Their ratios to one another must also be finely tuned. So improbability is multiplied by improbability by improbability until our minds are reeling in incomprehensible numbers. Now, there are only three possibilities for explaining the presence of this remarkable fine-tuning of the universe mentioned in premise one on your handout. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. The first alternative, physical necessity, holds that there is some unknown theory of everything which would explain why the universe is the way it is. It, it had to be that way. And there was really no chance or little chance of the universe's not being life permitting. By contrast, the second alternative states that the fine tuning is due entirely to chance. It's just an accident 
that the universe is life permitting and we're the lucky beneficiaries. The third alternative rejects both of these accounts in favor of an intelligent mind behind the cosmos who designed the universe to permit life. And the question is, which of these alternatives is the most plausible? Well, the first alternative seems extraordinarily implausible because, as we've seen, the constants and quantities are independent of the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants and quantities. For example, the most promising candidate for a theory of everything to date, a superstring theory, or so-called M-theory, predicts that there is a cosmic landscape, so to speak, of around 10 to the 500th power possible universes which are consistent with the present laws of nature. So that it does nothing to render the observed values of the constants and quantities physically necessary. So what about the second alternative, that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to chance? Well, the problem with this alternative is that the odds against the universe's being life-permitting are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. Even though there will be a huge number of life-permitting universes lying within the cosmic landscape, nevertheless, the percentage of life-permitting worlds will be unfathomably tiny compared to the entire landscape. So that a randomly thrown dart in the direction of the landscape has no meaningful chance of striking a life-permitting world. In order to rescue the alternative of chance, its proponents have there been, uh, therefore been forced to adopt a radical metaphysical hypothesis. Namely, that there exists an infinite number of randomly ordered universes composing a sort of world ensemble or multiverse of which our universe is but a part. Somewhere in this infinite world ensemble, finely tuned universes will appear by chance alone, and we happen to be one such world. There are, however, at least two major failings of the world ensemble hypothesis. First, there's no evidence that a world ensemble even exists. No one knows if there are even any other universes at all, much less uh, a randomly ordered infinite number of them. Moreover, recall that Borg, Guth, and Vilenkin proved that any universe in a state of continuous expansion cannot be infinite in the past. Their theorem applies to the multiverse as well. Therefore, since its past is finite, only a finite number of other universes may have been generated by now, so that there's no guarantee that a finely tuned universe will have appeared somewhere in the ensemble. Secondly, and even more fundamentally, if our universe is just a random member of an infinite world ensemble, then it is infinitely more probable that we should be observing a much different universe than what we in fact observe. Roger Penrose has calculated that it is inconceivably more probable that our solar system should suddenly form by a random collision of particles than the finely tuned universe should exist. Penrose calls it utter chicken feed by comparison. So, if our universe were just a random member of a world ensemble, it is inconceivably more probable that we should be observing an ordered region no larger than our solar system. For there are far more universes in the world ensemble in which our solar system comes into being instantaneously as a result of the random collision of particles than universes which are fine-tuned for intelligent life. Or again, if our universe were just a random member of an infinite world ensemble, then we ought to be observing highly extraordinary events like horses popping into and going out of being through the random collision of particles. 
since such things are vastly more probable than all of nature's constants and quantities falling into the infinitesimal life-permitting range. Observable universes like those are simply far, far more plenteous in the world ensemble than worlds like ours, and therefore ought to be observed by us. Since we do not have such observations, that fact strongly disconfirms the world ensemble hypothesis. On atheism, at least, it is therefore highly probable that there is no world ensemble. It seems, then, that premise to the fine-tuning is not due to physical necessity or to chance, from which it follows three, therefore, it is due to design. Now, detractors of design sometimes object that on this hypothesis, the cosmic designer remains unexplained. It said that an intelligent mind also exhibits complex order, so that if the universe needs an explanation, so does its designer. If the designer does not need an explanation, then why think that the universe does? This objection is based upon a misconception of the nature of explanation. It's widely recognized that in order for an explanation to be the best, you don't need to have an explanation of the explanation. In fact, if you think about it, so requiring would immediately generate an infinite regress of explanations of explanations of explanations so that nothing would ever be explained. So, for example, if astronauts were to discover a pile of machinery on the backside of the moon, they would be justified in inferring that this is best explained as the results of intelligent agents who left it there, even if they had no idea whatsoever who these intelligent agents were or how they came to be there. In order to recognize an explanation as the best, you don't have to have an explanation of the explanation. In the same way, the design hypothesis being the best explanation of the fine-tuning of the universe doesn't depend on our being able to explain the designer. That can be left an open question for future inquiry. Moreover, the complexity of a mind is not really analogous to the complexity of the universe. A mind's ideas may be complex, but a mind itself is a remarkably simple thing, being an immaterial entity not composed of pieces or separable parts. Moreover, properties like intelligence, uh, self-consciousness, and volition are not contingent properties which a mind might lack, but are essential to its nature. Thus, postulating an uncreated mind behind the cosmos is not at all like uh, postulating an undesigned cosmos with all of its contingent and variegated quantities and constants. So that postulating a mind behind the cosmos most definitely does represent an advance in simplicity for whatever that might be worth. Number four, objective moral values in the world. If naturalism is true, then I think it's plausible that objective moral values do not exist. Now to say that there are objective moral values is to say that something is right or wrong independently of whether anybody believes it to be so. It's to say, for example, that Nazi anti-Semitism was morally wrong even though the Nazis who carried out the Holocaust thought that it was right. And it would still be wrong even if the Nazis had won World War II and succeeded in brainwashing or exterminating everybody who disagreed with them so that everybody thought the Holocaust was right. And the claim here is that in the absence of God, moral values do not seem to be objective in that sense. So premise one of the argument is if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Many theists and atheists alike concur on this point. For example, the late J.L. Mackey of Oxford University, one of the most influential atheists of our day, admitted, and I quote, if there are objective values, 
they make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. Thus, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of a god. But instead of inferring God's existence, Mackey therefore denied that objective moral values exist. He wrote, it is easy to explain this moral sense as a natural product of biological and social evolution. Michael Roos, uh, an eminent philosopher of science, agrees. He explains, and I quote, morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such references truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great 19th century atheist who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right. But we've got to be very careful here. The question here is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I certainly think that we can. Rather, the question here is, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist? And like Mackey and Roos, I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality evolved by homo sapiens on this planet is objective. After all, given a naturalistic worldview, what's so special about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts of nature which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth, lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe and which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. On the naturalistic view, some action, say rape, may not be socially advantageous among human beings, and so has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the naturalistic worldview, there's nothing really wrong with raping someone. Thus, without God, there is no absolute right and wrong which imposes itself on our conscience. But the problem is that as premise two states, objective moral values do exist. And deep down, I think we all know it. In moral experience, we apprehend a realm of objectively existing moral values and duties which impose themselves upon us. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of the moral realm than the objective reality of the physical world. The reasoning of Professor Roos at best proves that our subjective perception of objective moral values has slowly evolved. But if moral values are gradually discovered rather than invented, then our gradual and fallible perception of moral the moral realm no more undermines the objective reality of that realm then our gradual, fallible perception of the physical world undermines the objectivity of that realm. Most of us recognize that in moral experience, we do apprehend a realm of objective values. Roos himself confesses in another place, and I quote, the man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. Actions like rape, torture, and child abuse aren't just uh, socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, tolerance, self-sacrifice are really good. 
But if objective values cannot exist without God, and objective values do exist, then it follows logically and inescapably that three, therefore, God exists. Number five, the possibility of God's existence. I rarely share this argument in a public talk, uh, not because I think it's unsound, but because it's so abstract that students are apt to think that uh, either it's some sort of a trick or they just don't understand it. But tonight I'm going to take a risk and share it with you. Now, in order to understand this argument, you need to understand what philosophers mean by possible worlds. A possible world is just a way the world might have been. It's a complete description of reality. So, a possible world in this context is not a planet or a universe or any kind of concrete object. It's just a world description. The actual world is the description that is true. Other possible worlds are descriptions which are not in fact true, but which might have been true. To say that something exists in a possible world is to say that there is some description of reality which includes that entity as part of the description. To say that something exists in every possible world means that no matter which description is true, that entity will be included in the description. So, for example, unicorns do not, in fact, exist. But there is some possible world in which unicorns exist. On the other hand, many mathematicians think that numbers, for example, exist in every possible world. Now, with that in mind, consider the ontological argument, which was discovered in 1011 by the monk Anselm of Canterbury. God, Anselm observes, is by definition the greatest conceivable being. If you could conceive of anything greater than God, then that would be God. Thus, by definition, God is the greatest conceivable being, a maximally great being. So, what would such a being be like? Well, he would be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, and he would exist in every logically possible world. A being which lacked any of those properties would not be maximally great. We could conceive of something greater. But what that implies is that if God's existence is even possible, then it follows that God must exist. For if a maximally great being exists in any possible world, he exists in all of them. That's part of what it means to be maximally great, to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect in every logically possible world. So if God's existence is even possible, then he exists in every logically possible world, and therefore in the actual world. Now, we can summarize this argument as follows. Premise one, it is possible that a maximally great being, a.k.a. God, exists. Two, if it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. Three, if a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. Four, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. Five, therefore, a maximally great being exists in the actual world. Six, therefore, a maximally great being exists. Seven, therefore, God exists. Now, it might surprise you to learn that steps two to seven of this argument are relatively uncontroversial. Most philosophers would agree that if God's existence is even possible, then it follows that God must exist. So the whole question devolves to premise one. Is God's existence possible? Well, what do you think? The atheist has to maintain that it's impossible that God exists. He has to say that the concept of God is incoherent, like the concept of a married bachelor or a round square. 
But the problem is that the, the concept of God just doesn't appear to be incoherent in that way. The idea of a being which is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good in every logically possible world seems perfectly coherent. Moreover, as we've seen already tonight, there are other arguments for God's existence that I've shared, which at least suggest that it's possible that God exists. So I'll simply leave the ball in your court. Do you think, as I do, that it's possible at least that God exists? If so, then it follows logically that he does exist. Six, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. New Testament critics have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. That's why the Jewish leadership instigated his crucifixion on the charge of blasphemy. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and hence evidence for the existence of God. Now most people probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But there are actually three established facts recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. His empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the very origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. Let me just say a brief word about each one of these. Fact number one, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers on the Sunday morning after the crucifixion. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in this area, and I quote, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. According to the critic D.H. Van Dalen, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. He says those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to Gerhard Ludemann, a prominent German New Testament critic, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Think of the situation the disciples faced following Jesus' crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead and Jewish messianic expectations had no idea of a Messiah who instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies would be shamefully executed by them as a criminal. Second, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the general resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Luke Johnson, who is a New Testament scholar at Emory University, states, some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again 
leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like uh, the disciples stole the body, or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. Therefore, it seems to me the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. So we can summarize this argument as follows. One, there are three established facts concerning the fate of Jesus of Nazareth. The discovery of his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of his disciples' belief in his resurrection. Two, the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead is the best explanation of these facts. Three, the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead entails that the God revealed by Jesus of Nazareth exists. For, therefore, the God revealed by Jesus of Nazareth exists. Finally, number seven, the immediate experience of God. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. And let me clarify by immediate here, I, I don't mean sudden. What I mean here is directly or unmediated, that you can have uh, an experience of God that is not based upon argument, but is a direct experience of God, just as I need no arguments for the existence of my wife because I experience her in a direct or immediate way. Now this is the way that people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. They did not think of God as an inferred entity, but as an experienced reality. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind or a conclusion to a syllogism, but an experiential reality that gave significance to their lives. Philosophers call beliefs like this properly basic beliefs. They aren't based on some other beliefs. Rather, they're part of the very foundations of a person's system of beliefs. Other properly basic beliefs would be the belief in the reality of the past, belief in the existence of the external world, and the presence of other minds besides your own. When you think about it, none of these beliefs can be proved. How could you prove that the world was not created five minutes ago with built-in traces of age, um, food in our stomachs from the dinners we never really ate, uh, memory traces in our brains of events that we never really experienced. How could you prove that you're not a brain in a vat of chemicals wired up with electrodes being stimulated by some mad scientist to make you think that you're here in this lecture listening to this talk? He, he might even be stimulating you to think that it's absurd that you could be uh, a brain in a vat uh, and not listening to this lecture. How could you prove that the other people in this room, that person sitting next to you, is not really just an android who exhibits all of the external behavior of an entity with an interior life, with a mind, when in reality, he's just a soulless robot-like entity? Well, none of these things can be proved. But although these beliefs are simply basic for us, that doesn't mean that they're arbitrary. Rather, they're grounded in the sense that they're formed in the context of certain experiences in the experiential context of seeing and hearing and feeling certain things, I naturally form the belief that there is a physical world of objects which I'm sensing. And thus my basic beliefs are not arbitrary, rather they're grounded appropriately in experience. There may be no way to prove such beliefs, and yet it's perfectly rational to hold them. In fact, you'd have to be crazy to think that the world was created five minutes ago or that you were a brain in a vat. Such beliefs are not merely basic, but properly basic. Now, in exactly the same way, 
belief in God is for those who know him a properly basic belief grounded in our experience of God. And we can summarize this consideration as follows. One, beliefs that are appropriately grounded may be rationally accepted as basic beliefs not grounded on argument. Two, belief that the biblical God exists is appropriately grounded. Three, therefore belief that the biblical God exists may be rationally accepted as a basic belief not grounded on argument. Now, if this is right, then there's a danger that arguments for God's existence could actually distract your attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, then God will make his reality evident to you. The Bible promises, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so focus on the external proofs that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. So, in summary, we've seen seven features of the world, seven signposts of transcendence pointing beyond the world to its ground in a transcendent reality. One, why anything at all exists. Two, the origin of the universe. Three, the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. Four, objective moral values in the world. Five, the possibility of God's existence. Six, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And seven, the immediate experience of God. Part of the power of the God hypothesis, I think, is that it explains such a diverse and broad range of human experience philosophy, history, science, mathematics, and so forth. I think that taken together, these reasons provide a powerful cumulative case for the existence of God. And for that reason, I find myself enthusiastically a Christian theist. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.